I want to ask you to use your imagination this morning. Pretend you are in the courtyard of Pilate's Judgment Hall. Picture it in your mind. Pilate had come out to meet with the Jewish leaders because the Jewish leaders would not go in to meet with him because to do so would have contaminated them and disqualified them from participation in the Passover. And so Pilate, early in the morning, came out to hear the accusations against Jesus. Now you're there. You and I are there. Pilate talks to Jesus, takes him inside and talks with him, brings him back out, presents him to the crowd. There's rejection there. Pilate decides to try to shift the responsibility, sends Jesus to Herod. Herod sends him back. He comes back, and Jesus and Pilate talk some more. It is a dramatic series of conversations which I would urge you to read during this week. And then Pilate walks out with Jesus, and there we are, and here we are. And he says to him and to them, 19th chapter of John, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus, therefore, came out. Here he comes. Picture your imagination. Here he is. Came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. In Latin, Eki homo. Behold the man. Now, I want you to keep him in your imagination as pictured standing right here. He's going to be joined by some others in a moment. But it is important that I impress upon you that he is closer to you right now than he would have been to you had you been in Pilate's court that early Friday morning. He is standing right outside the door of every one of our hearts. And we are faced with the perennial question of Pilate about himself and his relationship to Jesus, we are faced with asking the same question, what must I do with this man? 
something you must do with him. He's inescapable, unavoidable. Here he is. Behold the man. Behold the man who came to fulfill all of the prophecies and the promises of God dating back hundreds, even thousands of years. It is important occasionally to go back and approach Jesus through his holy foretellers, through those prophets and patriarchs who hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand made prophecies relative to the coming of the Messiah. And it is no accident, it is no coincidence, it is divine providence that Jesus, this man, behold him, fulfilled all of the prophecies, prophecies and promises of God relative to the Messiah. Let me read you a brief list of the prophecies that preceded him by hundreds and hundreds of years that are fulfilled in this man that stands before us this morning. The time of his birth was prophesied. The place of his birth, that he would be a descendant of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of the house of David, and of the tribe of Judah. The massacre of the children at the time of his birth was prophesied. That he would come out of Egypt was prophesied. That he would live in Galilee. That he would have a ministry to people. That he would be a prophet a priest. The prophecies declared that he would be rejected by Jews and Gentiles. It was prophesied that he would purify the temple, cleanse the temple. His triumphal entry prophesied. His betrayal by a friend for 30 pieces of silver his vicarious death on the cross, his death with criminals, the piercing of his hands and feet, the insults and the mocking that he would be offered gall and vinegar, that they would cast lots for his garments, that, a, that not a bone of him would be broken. His burial with the rich, his resurrection, his ascension were all prophesied hundreds, even thousands of years prior to this man's coming 
and he is the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God for the ages. He is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of the promises of God for the salvation of the world. Behold the man. Walk with me through the biblical hall of the patriarchs and let some of them join us this morning. Abraham, the man of faith, walks out to stand beside him. He said, I am a man of faith but behold, a man who had greater faith than I. Moses, I was a great leader. Behold, a man, he's a greater leader than I. David joins us. I was a great king. He's a greater king than I. Behold the man. Isaiah, the princely aristocratic prophet, joins us and declares, I was a prophet, but he's a greater prophet than I. Behold the man. Elijah, the fiery preacher, joins us. Conqueror of Ahab. I was a great preacher. He's a greater preacher than I. Behold the man. John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman according to Jesus' definition. John the Baptist standing on the banks of the Jordan said, I'm nothing. I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the man. Little did Pilate know that the words he ushered in his judgment hall that morning were almost a literal echo from the declaration of John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River three and a half years earlier Behold the man. Behold the lamb. Behold the one who is the fulfiller of all of the prophecies and promises of God. Behold the man. Now look at him. Behold the man 
who shows us what God is really like. The man who shows us what God is really like. We would not really know what God is like if it had not been for Jesus. In the second chapter of Colossians, in the ninth verse, we read some powerful words. <clears throat> Paul writes, In him, it is in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in his bodily form. All of God you will ever see visibly is in Jesus. Jesus is not like God. God is like Jesus. I have said that often. It bears constant repetition. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is all of God you will ever see. He is the totality of God in physical form, in him dwells all of God bodily. If you want to know how God feels about people who are broken because of their sin, how did Jesus react? woman at his feet crying and weeping kissing his feet pouring perfume on them she was crushed by experiences in her past and I don't know your past only God needs to know all of our past but whatever it is I imagine there's some days back there we'd like to forget well let me tell you something you come to Jesus he forgets them Some days in your yesterdays you would like to erase, he will erase them. Some sins that continue to plague you and you wonder if when you meet God you're going to have to face them again, listen to him say, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. That's God talking to you. That's this man. Behold the man who has come to show us what God is like. He forgives us. You in a desperate situation, physically, mentally, financially, emotionally, personally in your family, think of that woman who had had an issue of blood for 12 years, poor woman. Jesus was walking along on his way to another engagement. And she was so desperate, she reached out and did what was socially unacceptable in that day. She reached out and touched him. And suddenly he stopped and everybody said, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That's, that's improper. And Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, well, there's a lot of people around. He said, no, somebody with a desperate need in their life touched me. And I felt virtue. I felt power. I felt energy go out of me. This woman who'd been sick for, 30, for 12 years was healed. Why? 
because in her desperation and in her simple act of faith, she reached out to touch him. I'll tell you this morning, however desperate you may be, you reach out to him, he'll reach out to you, and he'll pour his power into you just as he did to that woman walking along the street in Galilee years ago. He'll heal your broken heart. You tried religion, didn't work, doesn't satisfy. You've been through all the rules and regulations. You've read all the books, all the manuals, all of that. That's fine, that's good. But still there's an empty spot down in your heart. As Pascal said, there's an empty spot, and an empty blank in every man's heart that can be filled only by God. Religion can't fill it. Ritual can't fill it. Regulation can't fill it. Laws can't fill it. Good deeds can't fill it. Good intentions cannot fill it. New Year's resolutions cannot fill it. Have a talk with Jesus on the side of a mountain like Nicodemus did and said, what do I need? Nicodemus, you need a new heart. And I will create within you a new heart. Great prophecy of Jeremiah. I will create within you a new heart. And you will be a new person. Friendless, feeling alone, desperate, sitting beside the pool of life, everybody else seeming to have a good time, but you can't get in there in time to enjoy it like the man who'd been sick for 38 years beside the pool of Bethesda. Jesus walked up to him and said, Do you want to be well? Take up your bed and walk. He'll say that to you today. Take up all of those things that have been burdening you and frightening you and distressing you and give them to me, and you can go home a whole person. That's what God is like. And God is likable. Jesus is likable. People like Jesus. It just distresses me to so to keep running into Christians who feel that to be a good Christian you have to be angry about something, obnoxious about something, critical about something. I think a, a doleful, complaining Christian is a contradiction in terms. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. He performed his first miracle at a wedding party, and if he'd not gone to that party, it would have been a flop. Have you ever noticed how many parties he attended? You read the New Testament through, and in the New Testament, 287 times you'll read the word joy or a synonym thereof, celebration, exhilaration. 287 times. Take the 15th chapter of Luke when the story of the, good, of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. What's the word, the theme that goes over and over and over and over again? Eight times you'll read the word joy, and each one of the miracles was concluded with a party, with a party, with a party. God came to throw a party of redemption for all who would put their faith and trust in him. Who wouldn't want to follow a God like that? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Never turned down an invitation to a meal. Went with folks, whoever they were, wherever they came from, whatever they'd done. And he said, your life can be better. Your life can be different. He came to put a spark in your step and a new hope in your life. Want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. I tell you, I don't believe that Jesus was a hearse driver at a 
funeral procession, I believe he was a host at a festive banquet. I do not believe that Jesus was a mourner at fast. I believe he was a mater d at a feast. He came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Let me point out something that may help you on your Mondays. It helps me on, on my Mondays. That verse in Colossians that I just read a few moments ago, that all the fullness of God, everything about God, the totality of God, every aspect, every facet of God's character and personality is embodied in Jesus Christ. He is God. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Therefore, God is not where holy things are. God is not where holy things are. Holy things are wherever God is. They're not some little secluded areas which are holy places where you can go and meet God. You meet God in your heart and your life and wherever God is with you, that place becomes holy. It becomes a place of the wholeness, W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. It becomes a place of the joy and the happiness of the Lord. That's why if all of God's people would see themselves as ambassadors of his and representatives of his, we can permeate this city with the wholeness and the happiness and the holiness of God. For wherever we are, it becomes different if we let Jesus Christ permeate us and live in and out and through us. God is not where holy things are. Holy things are wherever God is. Here's Moses walking along out there in an old dusty desert, dry, south Texas in August, and nothing blooming. And suddenly a bush starts to burn, a, just a scrubby old bush. And God says, Moses, take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Why was it holy? It was because God had shown up. It was holy because God was there. Your office can be a holy place. Your home, your business, your military base, your school, your church, the fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in us, what happens? We take him with us. And we can be the permeating force of the penetrating power of God to bring about love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, all of those manifestations, those fruits of the Holy Spirit. Behold the man. Behold the man who shows us what God is like. You think you're past the point of forgiveness? You think that you just, God can't answer your doubts? 
Well, just watch Jesus deal with everybody who had a problem. Everybody who had a doubt. Some people who didn't even know who he was until after he had touched them. He's here. But more importantly than being standing here, if he were here physically, he is closer to you right now than if he were here physically saying the same thing to you that I'm trying to say in feeble words of a human being. The living word of God, the totality of God embodied in this one man who stands at the door of your heart right now and knocks at your heart's door. The fullness of God dwells in him. Behold the man who shows us what God is like. Lastly, behold the man who died for our sins. I know you've heard that all your life. I've heard it all my life. I pray that I will hear it and you will hear it and we will hear it and our city will hear it in a new and profound way during these days. Behold the man who takes away the sin of the world. As Sandra sang a few moments ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He goes from Pilate's judgment hall to the cross we will be remembering that this week and in particular on Friday. And I don't know how old this sermon outline is or this sermon thought is. It may be as old as the Christian faith itself. I don't know where it came from. Clyde Childers, you may know where it came from. I'd I do not know where this ancient outline, simple though it may be, yet profound in its implications for us. Jesus Christ, behold the man who died for our sins. Now I want you to picture those three crosses on Golgotha. Jesus in the center, one thief to one side, one thief to the other side. This is an old, simple, and yet profound outline of all that it means to be a Christian, to become a Christian. The man on the center cross, behold him. That man died for our sins. He died for our sins. Uh, there are many, many various interpretations of the atonement. Many and varied. But I believe at the heart of every one of them, finally, if you pursue them far enough, finally you come to the point where at the heart of every theory of the atonement, the at one -ment, 
when man and God can come together in one moment, the atonement, the salvation of our souls, there is at the heart of that Jesus Christ taking our place. A vicarious, ignominious death, he died for our sins. The man on the center cross died for our sins. For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. There is, I'm quoting Scripture. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they use deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and the way of peace have they not known. But God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, now listen to this. God has made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? He knew no sin. That we might be made right with him. That we might be made righteous, forgiven, not because of works or religion or good intentions, but because of this vicarious, substitutionary death. He died for us. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He died for our sins. The man on the center cross died for our sins. A thief on either side. Over here, one thief. I don't know which side it's on. You look in the Scripture, you cannot tell whether they are on the right or the left, on either side. This thief says, if you are the Messiah... Save yourself and us. Railed on him. The thief on the other side leaned out from that horrible, excruciating experience of crucifixion, leaned out and looked at his fellow conspirator in crime, the thief on the other side, and he said, Don't ever don't don't say that about this man. He's not done anything wrong. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing amiss. You and I are getting what we deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. And one of the tenderest, most magnificent moments in all the Scripture. thief on the cross looks at Jesus and he said 
when you come into your kingdom, he couldn't have imagined what kind of kingdom it was going to be. Didn't look very promising at that point, did it? But he knew there was a kingly touch about this man. Behold the man. When you come into your kingdom, just remember me. Remember me. Simple act of faith. Simple act of commitment. A simple confession. Remember me. And almost the final act of Jesus' crucifixion was to save a dying thief. And he looks at him and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now here's the point. The three points to this classic sermon as old as the faith itself. The man on the center cross died for our sins. The man on this cross died in his sins. The man on this side died to his sins. On which side of the cross are you? Join the thief who declared, remember me. And you'll feel surging through your heart the comforting words of the living Christ. You will be with me. I will remember you. I will never forget you. I will engrave you upon the palm of my hand. I will write your name in the Lamb's book of life. It will be there indelibly forever and ever. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You want to be with him in eternity? Then get with the thief that said, remember me. Life, death. Heaven, hell. You can go either way. On which side of the cross do you take your stand today? Will you come trust him? Will you publicly acknowledge him even as this thief did on the cross? Will you publicly confess him? Will you publicly identify yourself with him as he did? I'll be here to greet you, to welcome you. As God leads you to trust Christ as your Savior, he's the only one. Behold him. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. There's no other way. The man on the center cross, behold him. He's the only way. He's the only way. Come trust him. Come be a part of his church. Come recommit your heart and your life to him. Come kneel and pray. Return to your seat. Whatever God impresses you to do. On which side? of the cross.
are you? Let's stand and sing.